This is Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! This episode is brought to you by The Felder Report. For every podcast I put out, I also put together a blog post that features notes and links related to the conversation. Many times there will be charts and reports as well. So if you haven't already, go to thefelderreport.com and check out what you've been missing. This is the third conversation with Diego Perilla I've published as a podcast, but the fourth time I've actually recorded a discussion of ours. The first time, Diego was kind enough to share many of the facets of his investment process. I found only afterwards that due to a technology issue, the audio recording was sadly unusable. So I was very glad to prevent the possibility of another such mishap by having this conversation in person. Though it was the holy week of Semana Santa in Spain and Madrid was relatively quiet as a result, I found Diego and his team toiling away in their top floor offices at Quadriga Funds. Considering Diego's views have been so prescient of late and his framework for approaching markets so relevant to the current environment, I was especially glad to have the chance to talk with him again. So please enjoy my latest conversation with Diego Perillo. You wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500? Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. Diego, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me, Jesse. Well, thank you for hosting me here in your, your beautiful office. It's an absolute pleasure to be here in Madrid and, and be able to do this in person. Um, it's wonderful. We've done a couple of these virtually, but it's nothing like uh, you know, being face-to-face. So thank you for hosting me here. It's my absolute pleasure. Yeah. We, the last time we spoke, I think it was almost exactly a year ago. And um, at the time, I think it was March of, of 2021, it was right around the time all of the meme stocks were flying, you know, <laughs> going to the moon. And, uh, you know, people were talking about stonks and, you know, how the market only goes up. Things have changed dramatically. In your latest piece, you, you write about how, uh, you know, bonds just had a terrible first quarter. Commodities are ripping higher. And uh, a lot of these popular meme stocks have absolutely crashed in the last 12 months. So what do you think has fundamentally changed over the past year to create this dramatic shift in markets? Well, I guess uh, uh, you know, the, the, what, what took it there in the first place? I think if we, uh, if we take a big picture of uh, what's been happening at the, at the macro level, um, we've seen decades of what I would call monetary and fiscal abuse, whereby every time we face a problem, um, we don't really solve it. We basically do a few things. We uh, uh, delay, transfer, transform, and, and enlarge the problem. Uh, we delay, uh, you know, by just uh, adding debt and spending, uh, which obviously it's an intergenerational uh, issue. Uh, we transform because uh, monetary policies printing money has this uh, domestic angle where we sell things uh, based on, on, on what's convenient but there's obviously a very uh, important angle that is more foreign about currency wars and its mirror image which is trade wars this it just creates this escalation uh, which has led to artificial low interest rates and as a result artificially higher uh, valuations and, and highly distorted uh, dynamics on, on the global scale 
And, uh, and clearly, once you abuse this, it gets to a point where you are also transforming this problem. And the transformation of the problem is mainly into inflation and inequality, both of which are becoming much more obvious since, since last year. And ultimately, the, the, the realization that all these things we've been doing are only enlarging the problem with bubbles too big to fail, systemic, etc. But I think within the framework of the anti-bubbles, you, you get uh, enormous complacency as well. And I think last year, you know, this idea, this belief that you can actually print and borrow and, and inflate your way out of trouble without any severe consequences is, is what took us there in the first place. And what we're seeing right now is more of a normalization, you know, uh, something's going to give. You have a, 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 an impossible balance for central banks to, to try to, to keep uh, you know, artificial setting of, of valuations and inflation uh, and, and something's going to give. And that's in some ways, you know, to, to understand why we had those huge valuations in the, the first place, uh, the simplest way to look at it is, you know, when I, uh, the way I summarized the last decade is the transformation of uh, risk-free interest into interest-free risk. You have a dynamic whereby bringing interest rates down to, to, to zero or even negative in places like Europe or simply artificial low interest rates, you don't need to be a PhD to understand that at zero percent nominal rates, the present value of $100 in one year, 10 years, 100 years or 1,000 years is par. And so when you have artificial low interest rates, you're effectively creating the mirror image, which is artificially higher valuations. And I keep saying the word artificial because mm -hmm. that's effectively what we've constructed. And that leads to wealth effect. You know, this is this illusion of wealth. Right. And, and whether you look at the meme stocks or on a more controversial basis, uh, crypto mm -hmm. or others, this wealth effect that is created, this illusion of wealth, which I, which I define as, you know, unrealized gains that can never be realized. It's just this impression of, of wealth right. if everybody tried to monetize it, it it doesn't exist it vanishes where it came from into into thin air and that's in a way what we're seeing is this enormous complacency this FOMO these other factors that happen within a highly artificial setting which invariably delay transfer transform the problem and and we're in a situation right now where this uh, mindset is, is is changing this this uh this game is changing and that's why some things are, are normalizing in some way. But I, I would argue that the, the, it was last year that was completely off. It's not, uh, what's happening right now is much more of a normalization of something that was very artificial, but uh, we've got ourselves into a big trouble to see how we come out of this. Uh, right. Uh, you know, because again, what we've done is only done, it hasn't solved anything. It has really enlarged the problem. Yeah. And I love how you, um, you know, I guess just in listening to you talk and in reading your latest piece, um, I, I just have been thinking about this idea that every bubble is built on some widespread misunderstanding. 
And you t- from listening to you talk, it sounds like a lot of the this bubble has uh, manifest in duration, in, in you know uh, discounting cash flows at you know much too low of interest rates. And I think behind this idea that got people so comfortable with a lot of these things, whether it's crypto or you know growth stocks uh, that you know have no cash flows today, but maybe will ten years you know yeah. down the line. Is that uh, you know there was a, a widespread belief in the idea of secular stagnation and the idea that inflation was gone forever and wouldn't come back, and so now that uh, inflation is here and it's looking like it's more than transitory, uh, people are having to reassess. Um, do you think that that uh, that misunderstanding about the nature of inflation and the nature of our inflationary environment? is behind a lot of these changes in asset prices. 100%. I think uh, you know the, the, the rules of the game are, are basically written. In, 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 from a game theory perspective, we, we all know what happens when uh, central banks lose independence, you know, when, when your central government is able to, to tap on, on the printing machine to, to basically access uh, free funding. Right, and this is something that I, I pointed out earlier: is the, the the transformation and the and the transfer of of problems. You know, think about governments like Spain. You know, where we're now um, being able to borrow money at, at negative nominal rates. Let's not fool ourselves. As much as I love my country, <laughs> it's, it's not a fair reflection of of the fundamentals of where we should be borrowing. It's one hundred percent artificial, and yeah. it's the result of central bank printing infinite amount of money to basically uh, fund this. So obviously the governments will take it uh, at those levels and and obviously you end up, you know, if you have that belief, that complacency, you may end up taking too much debt, which means when you need to normalize things and you try to normalize interest rates, uh, you're just simply unable to fulfill your obligations. And this is why this this uh, stupidity, this recklessness, mm-hmm. this uh, short-term, long-term uh, trade-offs, uh, they might give you some degree of short-term stability, but ultimately create uh, long-term problems. And I think here the, the issue is that once, it's a bit like I, I talked in the book, you know, uh, from a Nigerian perspective, you know, stable equilibrium, uh, unstable equilibrium, and meta-stable equilibrium. So you have... in, in Within some boundaries, you're in equilibrium, but once you get out of those boundaries, things scale out. Mm-hmm. And this is unfortunately a situation with, with inflation, right? I mean, this is where we're now. And I think it's worth tying up maybe with, um, you know, this analogy I use, this, these three levels of, of the investment game. You know, I have teenager kids, so I would mm-hmm. say, look, if investing was a video game, it would have three levels. Mm-hmm. And, and level one is where most of us have been playing for, for decades, for pretty much our entire lives, at least in, in the Western world, um, mm-hmm. which is, can you make money in nominal terms? Meaning, can you take your $100 or euros and turn them into 101 or, or whatever? When you actually think in nominal terms, invest in nominal uh, measure it in, in, in nominal terms, get recognized, rewarded, everything happens in nominal terms. This is, 
largely the a world of you know where inflation is somewhat negligible okay and and this is the game that central banks have have played in in some ways i think this 2% uh, official ta- uh, cap and and target for inflation i've always said that is high enough that it will dilute you by 20% plus compounding over 10 years but it's low enough that many of us will disregard it right mm-hmm. and and so in a world where once upon a time we had a you know 5% nominal rates and fairly low inflation you could pretty much think of of the game in nominal terms but we are now in decisively in level 2 and and level 2 it's a level where you need to make money in real terms and mm-hmm. this is not just this is about can you protect your purchase power you might your 100 dollars might be worth 101 but inflation at 5 or 7 or 10 or whatever percent means that you're actually losing you know for uh, whatever 7 uh, 9 10% 10% in in real purchase power and uh, this is a dramatic change in the rules of the game because actions that were that would win in level 1 are actually major losers in level 2 so who loses in level 2 obviously anything that is short inflation so cash fixed income and and credit in particular so if you think about you know my 100 euros i'm going to invest in euro we've had a situation where your 100 euros best case scenario is they would give you back 99 in 30 yeah. years right okay that that is linked to this idea of deflation and i'm doing so well um, right uh, this is the opposite you know your your 100 euros that are going to pay you back 100 or 101 in, in in 30 years i really think they're going to buy you pretty much nothing in 30 years in in real terms and and so this is um a level 2 where we are now and where things are changing dramatically and uh i would argue that you know we're on our way to level 3 just to complete the the picture which is uh, can you make money in real terms after taxes and 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 this is you might wonder well taxes are already very high uh yes they are and taxes have been uh mark twain would say there's two certain things in life you know death and taxes they've been a part of the game for a long time but i think we are about to see uh a meaningful increase in wealth taxes and and this is i think the way central banks and governments square the circle right you start out with a problem you try to print and borrow and inflate your way out of the problem this creates this huge uh, inequality where obviously uh, the the poor people suffer the most and the rich people the haves and the have nots that Ray Dalio would 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 talk about and how do you square things with populism and basically trying to take the money from you know the the, the rich back to 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 the poor and and this is again this this dynamic which is 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 at play and i think that the mindset from investors going from level 1 to level 2 it's uh it's huge it's very important and that's why you know i wrote this this new piece to try to bring an analogy that would basically bring it home in terms of understanding uh how how things are playing out 
Yeah, well, I, I love the the way that you frame it because it it helps you understand the psychological shift that I think investors are going through as they come to this uh, realization that inflation is here to stay. Um, and it does explain what's going on in the markets as you see, you know, bonds, you know, getting hammered and commodities starting to take off. But I, I think it, it also, um, you know, maybe helps to think about some of these misunderstandings uh, behind yeah. inflation because um, I, I just keep coming back to this wonderful uh, book, um, by uh, Goodhart and, and Pradhan, the great demographic reversal that talks about how, you know, we believed for a number of years now that uh, demographics have been um, disinflationary. And the truth is that aging societies are actually inflationary when you, when you think about it. We can talk about that if you want. But you make the point, too, that uh, central banks... You, have maybe counted on um, the the fact that you know glo- globalization was a permanent force um, that was going to be disinflationary permanently, and then also you know in in your uh, wonderful book the energy world is flat we talk you, you you write about how you know there was going to be a crash in in the oil price but commodity prices have been depressed for a number of years and there's been lack of investment and so yeah. these forces of globalization and commod- low commodity prices have given i think investors and central banks a sense of you know wow we really have killed inflation but now all of these things are are reversing you know what that uh, you you mentioned you know globalization in your recent piece and obviously you've been uh, very interested in commodities of throughout the course of your career. So maybe you can kind of discuss about, you know, structurally how these things have changed in a way that, that uh, investors maybe haven't anticipated. You, you touch on so many important points right there. And may, maybe I, uh, I talk a bit, bit more detail about this analogy of the frog in boiling water. We Absolutely. Go, we go one by one with some of these, these points. Um, so I think most people will be familiar with the, uh, the, the story you know that goes that if you put a frog in in, uh, in in water and you boil it and you bring it to boil at, at a very slow pace the the frog will not notice and it will eventually die from uh, you know, be, being boiled um, however if you uh, are uh, you, you throw the, the frog into into very hot water or you heat it very fast and it realizes it will it will jump out and, and this is an analogy I've been using for a long time. It was in, in, in my book in, in 2017, in the Anti-Bubbles. And, and in this newsletter, I sort of push it a little bit further with this idea. So let's start with, you know, the, the point that we're all frogs in this, in this monetary broth of monetary and fiscal. Uh, what's happening here? Well, central banks, the first thing I would say is there's like an official thermometer. <laughs> so, right. So the... What's the actual temperature of the water? Well, the official thermometer is the official inflation data, right? Which is controlled by the guy who's heating the, mm-hmm. the, the water, right? Um, so this idea, as I said earlier, of the, the 2% official uh, inflation is um, uh, it's designed scientifically so that us frogs will stay in the water, okay? It's, it's been heated but not so fast that just 2% per annum, we may not notice, but it increases and it compounds, right, every year. That's my first point. The, the second point is 
the actual real inflation, the pace at which it's uh, going up, uh, as a rule of thumb, I would say is at least twice the official inflation. And if you run the numbers and you understand the power of compounding, you see that the temperature will increase exponentially uh, uh, very fast. So uh, in that sense, uh, it's important to understand that our inflation baskets are very different as well. It depends on where you are in, in, in the broth or your situation. Some people here in us might have nappy inflation because they have little children mm -hmm. and I might have university, right, uh, etc. So uh, this idea that inflation was just one number and it's the official number, it's all linked to this, this point you're making. Now, I think on the inflation-deflation debate, uh, there are clearly some deflationary forces in the system. You know, you might open the window, you might have other ways in which uh, you know, you're funneling the, the water, whatever. With, and demographics uh, has, you know, for a long time been, been viewed as, as, as deflationary, uh, but there are many other things. And I think technology is probably the best known case mm -hmm. of uh, something that uh, gives you, you know, benefits in terms of your TV. I guess it's been a constant price. They just keep getting bigger and better and better, better sound. So in some ways, you're paying the same price for something much better that's deflationary, right? right. All, all else being equal, you, if you wanted to buy the same TV from 10 years ago, you buy it for a fraction of the price mm -hmm. today, right? So I think the important thing to understand is that there are very strong deflationary forces in the system. There are there, undeniable. However, they are partially or totally or more than offset by one single force which is money printing. Mm -hmm. The moment you're focusing on, uh, think about the, the monetary broth, right? If you have control of the fire, how much you want to, uh, heat you want to apply, and it's a very cold day and it's, your windows are open, whatever, what it means is you can actually put even more uh, fire without feeling that uh, temperature. But right. there are limits to that, you know, how cold will eventually things be. What happens when things normalize? You know, you need to close the window. Maybe you need to, it's actually summer. So this is a little bit what happens. You know, central banks apply this enormous amount, which eventually might, might need to normalize. And if you don't, then obviously it shows how much heat you're really applying to the water. So the frogs are not getting the benefit of deflation that you would get because the water should go down because the central bank says, oh, thank you very much, uh, technology, it means I can actually print even more. So if you think about a hole being, being uh, you know, on the ground where deflation actually digs this hole through technology, the central banks are literally filling the hole with paper. And it looks like it's stable, but it's not. And then when you know, the tide goes up and things happen, we're left with, with these this forces. So, the critical thing to understand is that, you know, they're telling us the narrative, don't worry. Yes, last year I increased the temperature by a lot, but it was just a one-off and blah, blah, blah. The reality is it, it, it's not. It's much more structural, as, as you say. And, and so in that sense, the critical dynamic, in my opinion, and the reason why, why now? Why suddenly is this rush? Why? Right? Mm -hmm. Why are the central banks now... You know, after telling us all this stuff, 
why now and why so quickly and why so aggressively and people that were incredibly dovish are now super happy why now and it's very simple it's inflation expectations mm-hmm. why did the frog jump why do frogs jump frogs jump out of the water because they feel the temperature going up very fast and they feel that the expectations that the water will continue to rise uh, the temperature will rise very fast and mm-hmm. these are the two reasons why we jump either because current inflation and the pace at which is being heated increases a lot and second we realize no so the critical thing to understand here is what happens when frogs start to jump and this is something that effectively the central banks start to lose control in a world of low inflation uh, they can apply uh, a lot of heat all the frogs are there they're going to eat their lunch right. now when frogs start to jump the central bank has a problem right. or they see all the frogs jumping the frogs are, are, are jumping out what it means for for the markets let's look at fixed income yeah okay there is this dynamic where people would argue that uh, this is conventional wisdom right long term interest rates are the reflection of you know how high short term interest rates will go so you would say long term interest rates go up because we're going to hike short term rates i've argued for a while that it could be the opposite it's actually long term interest rates or long term yields go up because you don't hike mm-hmm. what i mean by this is if you don't hike and you have too much uh, heat too much liquidity too much inflation the frogs start to jump what happens when us frogs start to jump out of the 30 year treasury mm-hmm. of course if china jumps or russia or any big institutional investor or whatever we jump out of 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 the of, of the uh, broth obviously the yields will go up what happens when yields go up well whoever is been financing themselves at, at that rate the government or whoever is going to suffer so we have this this situation where uh it creates this process where yields start to go up and start to go out of control and it forces the central bank to basically intervene and that's why i think you'll have a reversal not only of the hikes back into qe but you go one step further which is yield curve control yeah. and and i think that's something that if if the frogs start to jump and we start to lose control there's going to be no choice you you can just to complete the the the, the analogies and i think this is very important is why frogs stay in the water even if you know and you notice that the water the temperature is increasing a lot and you might increase and the answer is benchmarks mm-hmm. i mean think about this you know lifers or uh different companies that have very strict benchmarks on basically they're handcuffed their frogs handcuffed to the to the right. to the to the water and they they can see it coming and it's it's really sad because they know it's coming but there's right. literally nothing they can do they're handcuffed to it and i use well, this stupid analogy of, of of you know your your benchmark says your doctor told you to take five cyanide pills and you take only four and you're like i'm underweight cyanide pills it's like dude you're kidding yourself <laughs> right. so So I think the, the the analogy kind of helps understand a few dynamics and I do think we're at that point. Uh you know, you asked a few other points on, on globalization and the structural nature of commodities and and this is really a key question is to what extent can monetary policy 
basically uh, reverse and, and, and stop what's happening. And, and time will tell, but I, I think this is... Uh, yeah. Well, I think, I, I, you know, it's, it's fascinating that you, to, to discuss, you know, what long-term interest rates are doing, because that is another reflection of this inflationary mindset. But I also like that you bring up uh, benchmarks, because I think there's a question that goes above the three questions, you know, that you asked before. Uh, before, can you make money in nominal terms? I think invest, a lot of investors think, can I make money in relative terms to the benchmark? And, sure, right. can, you know, can I do 2%, 3% better than the S&P? Even in a year, the S&P is down 20%. You know, that's, yeah. that's not, or can I do 2 or 3% better than, you know, the, the 30 year you know, treasury performance? Even if that means I'm still down 10, you know, for the year. That's a mindset, I think, that, you know, is, zero. yeah, that, that's, that's not a wonderful thing. And I think more people are going to be moving to these other mindsets of, uh, you know, uh, absolute returns and then real returns and, and these types of things. Um, but to come back to, to the inflation debate again, uh, I, I want to, I, I love the metaphors you use about the central bank turning up the heat because I do think, you know, if you look back to what Jay Powell said in 2019, he mentioned, and he did walk this back afterwards, but he did say, you know, too low inflation is the greatest challenge of our time in roughly 2019, I think. And so they were clearly of the mindset that secular stagnation and deflation. These were the challenges they had to fight. So when the pandemic came along, they turned the heat up all the way. <laughs> Let's turn it up to high. And because we have so many deflationary forces, but what the pandemic did yep. was it accelerated the process towards deglobalization, Correct. which is inflationary. Um, it also accelerated the inflationary demographic shifts of you know people retiring and leaving the workforce and the supply of labor shrinking and so yeah. we saw a lot of this these inflationary forces actually pick up steam at the same time the central bank was applying a ton of uh, uh, yeah, yeah heat to to this fire so now they 're in this, this situation where they've they 've clearly overdone it. And the economy has, has overheated. Uh, and you bring up the point, do they even have the power? They can walk back what they've done, but can they address uh, deglobalization? Can they address, de you know, demographics and uh, reducing a reduction of the labor slide relative to the overall population? And the trends toward, you know, populist politics that all these things have resulted in. Monetary policy can't really address these things, can it? So it, it leaves them in a difficult situation. No, I think, again, you bring in great points. I think one of the things people must understand is that there's a, a very significant delay in between uh, action and reaction in, in, in monetary policy and fiscal in some ways. I use the analogy, and I wonder if people, this happened to people listening to us. Uh, you go to the beach, you don't apply any sun cream, you spend the entire day there and it's only by the time you know it's uh you get back home at night that you're completely and utterly burnt right and you're like <laughs> done so there's a little bit of, of this you could also use not only solar radiation you could also use nuclear which is obviously more deadly so you could probably have a walk around uh chernobyl and just having a love with your friends and play a football game and and just be there and say come on guys there's nothing happening here only to know Two weeks later, that you know, uh, 
you glow at night and, and, and things happen. So if you are not mindful and you apply way too much uh, radiation to, to the system, the damage is already done. Mm -hmm. And I think this is the point I keep making and why uh, our grandparents, you know, introduced um, this, this, uh, these limits, right? I mean, in, in inflation and printing and whatever, We've, they've seen this movie. They know we, the grandparents are the ones who want us to apply uh, sun cream, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I also, a point I, 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 I missed earlier, you know, if any people, if anybody's listening from Latin America or emerging markets, They've been playing in level two. For right. a I mean, they have right. such an advantage against us right. because they, they've seen this already. We don't need to be rocket scientists to know, you know what happens, right? And, and so to your point on, on globalization, um, I, I do think the, the pandemic, as you, as you well pointed out, has effectively uh, highlighted some of the Uh, weaknesses and deficiencies of the of, of the system. One of them is this idea of becoming overly reliant on on just in time and the perfection of uh, you know uh, globalization. And, and if I go back, I I would bring it to currency wars and and trade wars. I mean, to some, in some ways, why did we ship or uh, investment, employment, you know, technology? to China or whatever, you know, sometimes it's because of, you know, uh, artificial uh, interest rates, very cheap labor, very aggressive uh, fiscal deals, right? Mm -hmm. And so, of course, the short-term nature of the business means we are going to, to go there and give them our employment, our uh, everything. And then you realize that things happen, right? I mean, we've seen bottlenecks obviously highlight this with the inability to, 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 to go. But I think there's something more structural. I think this transformation of the problem, the populism, the extremism, the nationalism are consequences. You know, uh, uh, trade wars and imposing tariffs is not only a defense against monetary abuse, it's also protecting your, your own people. And so the idea of buying things that are domestic are not only helping you, but also are, are safer, right? So we go from... From, uh, I think there's been a dramatic shift you, you see now. I mean, uh, lots of headlines. I mean, uh, wheat, no? so Egypt just uh, acquiring uh, strategically energy security, food security. You go, there's an element of not just having enough and doing things just in time. You're going into just in case. You're going to, re you know, resilience economics. And, and this is something that, again, goes back to inflation. I mean, if you have Uh, expectations of, sh of shortages, of course you're going to hoard. You know, if you're China, why wouldn't you shift your, uh, you know, wet paper called yuan into uh, things like oil or, or whatever? There's, there, there's a first mover advantage you know, for government to print money and take all these assets while all the frogs don't realize the, the effect. <coughs> so I do think that geopolitically as well, this, this trend of deglobalization is actually leading to a polarization of the world. And mm -hmm. I don't think Russia did this uh, just like that. I think they did it with their eyes open and implicit uh, support from, from a part of the world. And, uh, and yeah, this is, this is adding to, to what we've discussed. Yeah, we, I, we haven't even um, really discussed the inflationary implications of a de-dollarization around the world. I think, you know, that... Um, 
there were a lot of inflationary impulses even before the war in Ukraine. Obviously, the war exacerbated a lot of those issues related to you know food security for for a lot of countries, but also you know just in the wake of the sanctions imposed uh, upon Russia. You know, there are a lot of people um, speculating that uh, this could have an impact on um, people's willingness to, you know, uh, uh, transact in dollars and, and, you know, invest uh, uh, in um, treasuries. So, you know, that seems to be another, you know, I, I guess what I'm trying to point out is it seems like the central bank, you know, in 2019 counted on disinflation and low inflation to be able to continue the monetary process they've had going for 10 plus years now. And now everything seems to be conspiring to remove their ability to do that. Uh, Now it looks like after all this monetary uh, expansion that we've seen, already we're seeing signs of uh, potentially heading towards recession, right? People are talking about the yield curve inverting. But also, you know, as an equity guy, I look at you know, the trucking stocks imploding, retail stocks uh, rolling over, home building stocks, all these, you know, inside of the stock market, as, you know, Stan Druckenmiller said, is the best economist he's ever seen. And right now it's pointing to a real weakening of the of the economy. So the Fed is, is really tasked uh, with reining in inflation at a time when they may have to force recession and, and pop the asset bubbles in order to, to try and bring infra- inflation under control. Um, you've said in, you know, in this environment, uh, the markets, the economy is much more fragile than it was in 2018. Yeah. So how do you see this progressing, this challenge for the central bank as? I think it's very important to understand that the central banks are, are trapped, right? They have this, uh, problem called, uh, bubbles to be. To fail, you know, I think they've created this beast based on complacency and the wealth effect if it unwinds is big and, and on, the, on the other hand they have inflation. Uh, I think there's an interesting debate with respect to populism, what, what it means, right? It comes obviously from Latin populus, from people, right? So populist measures are those who are, you know, favor the, the people, right? Or the, the majority of the people. This is an election year in the U.S., and under normal conditions, you would use this as a factor to say, oh, they're not going to let the stock market go down because it's an election year and every year. Well, this goes with the view that the populist thing to do is to have higher equity markets. The thing is the enemy today is different. The enemy today is called inflation. And the, you know, here in Europe, it's a different situation to the U.S., but I would believe uh, that the... uh, populist movement it's starting the narrative is starting to you know basically look at inflation as a much bigger problem so guess what if the stock market is down 20 percent then fine you rich guys have 20 percent less you're still uh, mega wealthy but and you still have your houses and whatever but the uh, the real issue is 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 what's happening to to the poor crowds and so this could have an interesting effect because we talked earlier about the change of mindset on the investors as we go from uh, level zero, as you pointed out, one and then two in real terms. But what happens to the regulators? What happens to the central bankers, the governments? And I think inflation is also changing the mindset. The ironic thing is they're the ones who created this problem in the first place. 
but they have to pretend that they're doing something about it. And this is the reason why you could expect uh, very strong action because they are, in a way, well, looking for, obviously Putin is now guilty of everything, mm -hmm. uh, but they will try to find scapegoats. They have to pretend that they're doing something about this. But it's important to put things in perspective. Okay, First of all, what sort of hikes are we looking at? Right? We are talking about hikes that are bringing us to perhaps you know, 2, 2.5%, 3%. Okay? When inflation, uh, as of writing today, we will, or, or speaking today, uh, you know, we're, we're heading into a, uh, one of the biggest inflation and, and data releases, but it's in the region of 8%. So let's not fool ourselves. Okay? They pretend they're doing something about inflation. We're fighting inflation. But guess what? Interest rates in real terms are very, very negative. Every day that goes by, it's very negative and it's negative carry for all these things. And, and so the question is, one of the big questions is, are we able to normalize things in a way that we go back to, to level one? I don't think so. I think we are likely to stay in level two for a while. Real rates are going to stay very negative for a while. And this is really bad news for some stuff and, and, and much better news for others. The second point that I think is critical is, you know, when you think about this 2.5% terminal rate or, or the 2.5%, why that number is so important is because if, if for those old enough to remember uh, Q4 2018, <laughs> um, we had a situation where uh, Powell was in autopilot, right? You mm -hmm. remember uh, hiking rates after a very long period of, of monetary uh, abuse. But uh, what happened is once we got to 2.5%, things started to happen. So companies that were heavily indebted because, you know, whether it's GE or Ambev or others that pursued the bigger uh, expansion through, through debt found themselves that as, as uh, interest rates were going up, they're really, really struggling, right? And you had the credit market going and equities collapsing. And then uh, the Fed had to come to the rescue uh, over Christmas. Now, at that point, and this is 2018, the move to 2.5% was already big enough to trigger this, this uh, tipping point. And we had to bring rates down to one5 just to contain things a bit, alongside with more uh, printing. My view is today the situation is way, way worse than 2018. And this is why, you know, perhaps one of the biggest uh, and, and most important questions uh, right now is to what extent are we able to hike rates uh, without uh, creating the implosion of the system? And I found uh, fascinating that our uh, friends at Goldman Sachs, my former colleagues, who I respect a lot, you know, they are putting a strong argument that, you know, the economy is very strong and that we are less uh, sensitive to, to, mm -hmm. to interest rate hikes. And academically, you know, they're all very good arguments, you know, mm -hmm. and, but I think the jury is out mm -hmm. and, and we're going to see that uh, quickly. To some extent, the, the, the recent uh, move up in equity markets, the uh, bull trap in my view, and you know, feeds back into this bubble anti-bubble dynamic of artificial low vaults sucking a lot of people in. But uh, you know, the, 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 these things that are happening, it, it's clear to me that 
a 50 basis point hike is much more likely at 4,600 than at uh, you know, 4,200, mm-hmm. right? So in, in an ironic way, the bull trap is feeding the, 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 the hikes in, in a way that uh, right now we're easing some of that. Mm-hmm. So maybe uh, that, that's a kind of uh, dilemma we're playing. But I think the important thing to understand is that we already knew by 2018 what would happen at two and a half. The situation is way worse for a long list of reasons, right? I mean, we've had this uh, massive growth in, in, in debt, massive growth in printing. We have a war that is creating a, you know, tremendous disruptions. We still have huge bottlenecks in the system, you know, clear signs of, of dislocation, clear things that are under the surface that are hurting uh, really a lot of stuff. And, and, uh, and so my common sense and judgment and analysis tells me that, no, we are uh, probably even more sensitive to, 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 uh, than we were in 2018. And that's why I think uh, we may not see the full extent of the hikes that are priced in. Mm-hmm. You know, we will see central banks as always, you know, perhaps delaying and, and trying to factor things in. And this is part of the narrative that they use to try to keep us frogs from jumping. Because if, if we jump, then it creates a really big problem. They will be forced to come and print and, and, and finance the, the amount of outstanding debt, not only with what's already done and needs to be done to continue things, but also to offset the water levels that are being left by you know these this frogs going out, which... Uh, are going to boil the remaining frogs at yeah. an even faster rate. Yeah. So that that's uh, it's it's all a big change. In, in, and as you pointed out, all these things that were kind of going in one direction are, are, have shifted in in the other. And and with the mindset of, of populism changing, uh, you almost know the end game is they have to pretend they will go for the hikes. The hikes will create a lot of pain. They will have to unwind and, and slow down the pace without fixing anything and then you're left in a situation that is worse way worse than where you started which yeah. is which is you know the first point we made in this discussion today right well I, I find it very helpful you know to talk about when we talk about a normalization of monetary policy right we're talking about two and a half percent uh, was too much and obviously they had to back off of that in 2018 and then they had to start printing money again in t- 2019 to address the repo crisis because there was just you know the, too much debt and and uh, to for the system to, to handle um, I find it helpful you know I, I think I read uh, Stan Druckenmiller has said in the past he would present his investment team uh, with kind of a scenario, we say, pretend you came down from Mars, and I'll yeah. give you the economic data, and you tell me where you mm-hmm. think Fed funds rate is. And so, if we just do that today, and you look at you know Q4 nominal GDP was something like 12 percent, right? Inflation pushing 8 mm-hmm. <laughs> percent, unemployment rate around 4 percent. You know, where would you guess the Fed funds rate is? Mm-hmm. And you, there's no way you would guess it's at zero percent, and they're printing over a hundred billion dollars a month. So. When you think about normalizing, I think about something like uh, the the Taylor rule, which suggests you know Fed funds should be eight or nine percent or something today. There's absolutely no way. I mean, if they if they took Fed funds to eight or nine percent, all hell would break loose, right? I mean, markets would crash. And so, 
to the, just the fact that we're discussing, can they get to two and a half? <laughs> can they, can they reduce the balance sheet? It argues, uh, you know, when you think of it in those terms, it, it argues that, yeah, frogs should be jumping out of this water as fast as they can. Um, so I, I, I guess my question is, uh, there's already an argument that frogs should be, for, you know, everybody who can, who's not tied to a benchmark, should be jumping out of the water. Um, but I guess the, also the, the point that you're hinting at, too, is that there's a good chance they won't even be able to get to two and a half or reduce the balance sheet. Um, and in light of, you know, the, those, the economic data, um, uh, they were going to be forced to choose between allowing inflation to just continue to run based on these, a lot of these secular forces we've talked about or crash the markets. And, you know, by tightening financial conditions to a degree, that, you know, requires much lower stock prices in these things. And so uh, it, it's a situation that's, uh, for the central bank, that's uh, not ideal. And for investors, that's not ideal. How how do you think, where should frogs be jumping? <laughs> where should they be looking to, 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 I guess, avoid the situation or best protect themselves in this situation? Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, the... Um it, it's it's interesting because the, uh, the burst of the bubbles is deflationary. We know that, so you you will ultimately fix the problem by by destroying everything. But uh, mm -hmm. you know, you look at the experience in emerging markets in Venezuela or Argentina or whatever, which are obviously extremes, and you see the point that I was making. You know, this idea that you can fix problems by by printing and debt. It's, it's not a zero-sum game. I mean, it's path-dependent and you end up in a worse position than you started, right? Um, in terms of looking at the current broth, what you are, I think it, you know, you made me think earlier, interesting is, is do, I, do I stay in the US dollar broth or do I go to the euro broth or do I go to the ruble or I go to EM? And uh, every broth is being, uh, you know, uh, printed and, and boiled at a, at a fast pace. Think about Japan. Japan, we have a very historic event uh, this month. Okay, we Japan has always been pushing the boundaries of uh, of monetary policy, um, you know, uh, and they were the first one to introduce yield curve control. Let's talk about this uh, for a second because I think it's it's important to understand uh, what it means and why it might be ahead of us. And so, when you think about monetary policy, you know, with interest rates and hiking and, and whatever, that's part of the accelerator. When you go into QE, which uh, was sold to us as temporary and we quickly realized it, it was, uh, as always, something that stays forever, in, in the latest form, it was $120 billion a month. I, this is your allowance, Jesse. You have $120 billion a month. Go and spend it. And you do that and you just put it at play and you, know, you buy some treasuries and you buy some mortgages and you buy whatever in, in Europe or Switzerland or Japan, you even buy equities or you know, non-government non debt. But uh, that's a big amount and you're doing it quantitatively. Now, the next step is I need to keep yields low because my debt is so huge. In Japan, my level of debt is so ginormous. So I'm going to... I'm going to fund myself at 10 basis points. This is it. The 10 year is uh, 10 basis points. That's what it's worth. Why? Because I say so. And you don't link it at 10 basis points just by doing 120 billion a month. You will do whatever it takes. Mm -hmm. 
and whatever it takes means infinite amount of money, it shows and it pretends to be a two-way market. Mm -hmm. But in reality, in the last couple of weeks, we've seen the first time JGB has been tapped at 25 basis points. And this is pretty huge news and is the reason why dollar yen went. Because mm -hmm. and this is something I've been talking about in my, in, in my book since 2017. When you build this thing and you're abusing monetary without limits and you have that huge amount of debt and you can't let yields go up because you go bankrupt and you have to keep them under control, but inflation is rising and, and frogs are jumping, it's very obvious. You need to print more to keep those yields low. And this is what uh, might be ahead. So to what extent are the different broths being boiled at different speed? You know, ultimately, the degree of freedom of the system of monetary and fiscal abuse is always the currency, always. Okay? And you would argue, in fact, you know, the dollar is, is positioned, even if they're desperately trying <laughs> to, 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 to devalue themselves out of this, uh, they're fighting inflation, they're hiking rates, but look at the monetary divergence you're mm -hmm. seeing across the world. I mean, China locked down, I mean, yields crossing, I mean, dollar China is, is ridiculous. It's, it's one of the most, the, the, the yuan, I think it's very artificial. Uh, there are reasons to believe that it, it, could, it could go a long way. There are much more strategic battles being played. But they've told us the story of stability, of high yields, of control, and many investors have actually jumped into the Chinese broth, mm -hmm. which I think it's uh, good luck to them. I mean, it's mm -hmm. a bit of a Hotel California, mm -hmm. uh, getting in and, and getting out. And so from a currency perspective, the first thing is, where do I want to be? Which fixed income do I want to be? Which currency do I want to be? And so that's not obvious, right? You may jump from one boiling broth into another boiling broth of currency, you could go into a frying pan, which is equities, mm -hmm. right? Where valuations are very hot and, and you know, the hiking rates and the water being splashed and whatever is gonna, or you could argue, argue, arguably go into, into other pieces, other anti-bubbles, other colder surfaces. Um, I personally happen to be a big believer in, in, in gold, I've been for, for a long time, but, more because of its real asset nature. Gold happens to have a strong, uh, obviously, monetary angle and, uh, and historical angle. But generally, real assets, uh, you know, real estate, certain real assets, I think, are going to be uh, very important. So what does it mean for portfolio construction? And I'm going to bring a, an analogy that I use a lot. I, I'm Spanish, so I use soccer. Uh, European football or world football. Um, but I think the, the, the portfolio is a team. Okay, there's, uh, it's a powerful analogy because you know, this, is, this is about the team. It's not about the individual players, about the, the performance of the team. And you need uh, strikers, you need midfielders, defenders, goalkeepers. You need things that will do well when the world does well, and you need things that will do well when the world does badly. And this dimension of risk on, risk off, you can, you can paint it in a number of ways. It's a long vol, short vol, it's a income versus capital gain, it's a, you know, it's a carry, uh, play you know, versus, versus vol. There, there are many dimensions that describe this risk on, risk off. I don't believe in a team with 11 strikers, I don't believe in a team with 11 goalkeepers, mm -hmm. and I don't believe in a coach that pretends to have a crystal ball 
that will say in minute seven, they're going to attack and then I will attack you. And then this, you have no idea whatsoever where the ball is going to be. You just need to be sure that you have the right players to control the ball, defend and pass it around and score goals and defend. That's as simple as that. So this idea that investing is about having a crystal ball, I don't subscribe to it. I believe that it's the opposite of having a crystal ball. You actually need a proper team diversified that will have pieces that do their own job. I happen to be a goalkeeper with my strategy. We were, as you know, one of the best, if not the best uh, performing hedge fund during 2020 in, in February and, and recently in, in, in during the Russian crisis. So yeah, the goalkeeper will do very well when it's needed and it might suffer and potentially significantly during other scenarios, but this is the power of the team and the power of rebalancing. Now, in addition to this important, let's call horizontal dimension, which is the risk on risk off and the balance team and rebalancing, there's a new dimension that comes in level two, meaning not all strikers are the same. Not all defenders, not all goalkeepers are the same. So when you apply the inflation filter to your team, effectively, I think you need to be in a long inflation bias. And this is why equities are preferred to credit. That's why real assets are preferred to cash. And this is why gold or volatility are preferred to fixed, fixed income. Because cash, fixed income and credit are short inflation. And in the long term, in level two, they're going to lose you. So I might be bearish in the sense that I think, you know, rates are going up, equities are going to suffer, but I have no uh, crystal ball. Things could happen, anything could, could, could happen. So in that sense, I believe investors need a balanced team that will do well across any conditions, wherever the ball goes, it's going to be a very volatile game. It's going to be, uh, you know, the referee has been uh, bribed for the longest time, you know, with offsides that were not and fouls and, the, the referee is, is, is changing the stance, you know, it's, it's not going to allow so much, uh, it's not so complacent anymore, he's going to start. Uh, so I think you need, a, you, need, you need a team that will be uh, able to uh, embrace volatility, not fight volatility. And this is the idea of having uh, defenders and goalkeepers. It's not that you, yeah, well, you're so bearish, you think you're, you're going to lose the match for zero. No, I, I think we're going to win. Mm -hmm. but. You know, I need to score goals, I need to defend, and I need both. So mm -hmm. adding goalkeepers to the team, adding volatility, adding tail risk, adding defenders uh, that will defend under different scenarios, with, it could be a, a put option on the yuan, mm -hmm. it could be a call option on, on, on inflation, it could be gold, it could be puts on the S&P. And, and, and then I think it's, it's the balance of art and science of how you build these things. But from a portfolio perspective, Certainly, things are changing, and I think investors, at the end of the day, I'm just a player, I'm just a goalkeeper. Mm -hmm. uh, the investor is the coach. You decide what strategy you want to play, you know, think for the long term, think for the season or the next few seasons. Mm -hmm. It's not just the next game. How you want to play the season, what sort of players do you need in your team, how are you going to rebalance and embrace volatility and compound on volatility, and how are you going to, to succeed in, in, in level two and level three, which are... Uh, which are here and, and, and around the corner. And, and this is why you, you, you pointed out something critically important, these misconceptions 
you know, this, this misconception sometimes is an oversimplification of reality and things that work short term might not work long term. And I think <laughs> there are a lot of traps in the system and just need to be careful because yeah. ironically, financial insurance is cheapest when you need it the most. Okay. Mm-hmm. Look at, look at, uh, anything, but, uh, with the, with, when, when the VIX is at 15, you know, and yeah. the S&P is at 4,800, nobody wants to buy insurance, right? right. It's like, right. and then when the equities are at 3,500 and, and the VIX is at 50, everybody's looking to buy the VIX. No, sorry. Yeah. This is a, a game where you accumulate insurance when it's cheap and you monetize it when it's expensive and you rebalance. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, it's not, the world is not as good at 4,800. It's not as bad at 3,000 and be volatile. So yeah. I, I think it's a fascinating time for, and we need to keep this idea that portfolios, again, are, are like teams and, and you need to truly find that true diversification. I think yeah. the problem with um, many, many portfolios is, is what I call false diversification. And false diversification confuses two things. A portfolio with a bunch of stuff and a diversified portfolio. Right. They're different things. If every single thing in your portfolio is the same trade, right. for example, I have a diversified portfolio of crypto. It's an oxymoron. I mean, it's like, <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? Right. Well, I have these 10 cryptos. I'm diversified. You don't need to be a genius to know that it's the same trade. So don't fool yourself. Right. Okay. Don't, don't think you're diversified. And, and so you have to look for things that are truly diversified by nature, right. by construction. Right. Because when volatility explodes and, and liquidity thins up and correlations polarize, mm-hmm. that's when people are caught sometimes with excessive hidden leverage that comes from, from things that are very mechanical. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and so this complacency, this idea of the central bank put that mommy and daddy will always have her back, it's, it's, um, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a misconception. Yeah. And I think, again, going back to surviving the game and not getting red carded and, and, and <laughs> winning in the long term, I think will require truly diversified portfolios where my strong sense is that you need a, a long inflation bias because the next decade, I, unfortunately, I think is the transformation of bubbles too big to fail into stagflation. Um, that's I think where we're heading. Yeah. It's, I, I love the sports metaphor um, because I do think most investors, as they've been conditioned to do over the last 10 years, buy the dip and just put all of their eggs into offensive players. Um, I, you know, I, I'm a big hockey fan and yeah. I have a good friend who's uh, uh, from Edmonton um, in Canada and, and he's a huge Oilers fan. They have the two best players of their generation. And so they'll score four goals a game. They'll win the scoring titles. But in a lot of games, they'll give up five goals a game. And so, it's, so it's just heartbreak for him every year in the playoffs because they just can't play defense. And so it's yeah. just so, you know, it, it's very exciting, but it's also not very fulfilling because they can't really, really accomplish by, by, much. By the dip is a bit like uh, you only play with striker because once the ball goes the other way, the referee will call uh, offside. And then uh, so you, who, who needs defenders? Right. Why do I need a defender? If mommy and daddy, if the referee is there, you yeah. know, and so uh, this this idea, this complacency, uh, it's it's brutal. Of course, you know, uh, you know, who needs a goalkeeper? Right, a right. 
I want to ask you specifically about gold because I've, I've been studying gold for the last few years. And to me, from the looks of the gold price relative to negative real interest rates, gold appears dramatically undervalued. I, I, I think the thing that's holding it back is the fact that it's had to price in an aggressive Federal Reserve. So it's, it's priced in perhaps the most aggressive tightening path that we've seen since Paul Volcker. And you mentioned that, you know, perhaps they're not going to be able to pull this off. And so that to me would seem like a potential catalyst for much higher gold prices if the Fed is forced into another pal pivot. Whatever point that comes, that could be a, a catalyst for much higher precious metals prices. Do you, do you see things as that in that no, way? I or? think, look, every bubble has an anti-bubble. Yeah. And um, just for those who are not familiar with the concept, um, I, I coined the idea of anti-bubble uh, as a generalization of, of sort of Soros framework of bubbles. I mean, uh, Soros defines, or my interpretation of Soros definition is, bubbles are assets that are artificially expensive based on a belief that happens to be false, what he calls a misconception. So bubbles are basically situations where the emperor uh, is naked, right? So what happens is what I did is I generalized the framework and I said, okay, misconceptions distort reality, but not only through artificially high valuations, you could also have artificially low valuations. And so there are three dimensions. The first one is this idea that anti-bubbles are assets that are grossly artificially cheap based on a misconception. They're some sort of mirror image of a bubble and uh, an extreme value because it's, it's a matter of when, not if, that they will price higher. The, the second uh, idea is the fact that bubbles and anti-bubbles are like distorted mirror images of each other. So by construction, the moment the uh, misconceptions understood and the bubble bursts and the anti-bubble reflates, it's exactly the same instant, both in terms of catalyst and timing, because they're two reflections of the same process. In fact, it's a reflexive process where, mm. you know, you could see uh, the bubble imploding and volatility going up or volatility going up and the bubble imploding. This is the cause effect. Uh, it's reflexive, mm -hmm. right? And, and so I called it anti-bubble, a bit like an antivirus or an anti-missile. It's a defense mechanism against, against the bubble. And, and the third dimension, which is this contrarian idea, this uh, idea that you, you know, insurance is cheapest when, when you need it the most, is, is true, is, 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 is the reflection of this, uh, the nature of the bubble anti-bubble. So I would argue that gold is in some ways the anti-bubble of the fiat bubble. And it's, it's a bit, uh, presumptuous to, 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 to say that it, it, gold is the only thing that <laughs> right. the only anti-bubble of the fiat bubble uh, to, to the limit most real assets uh, will be but I, I do happen to believe that the you know two and a half thousand year three thousand year history of, of gold as a, as a monetary asset is, is no coincidence I mean we've tried with uh, copper we've tried with silver we've tried mm -hmm. with land we've tried with many things to try to anchor that. And, and I think gold has this, you know, unique set of physical, chemical, you know, abundance that, that makes it, makes it quite special. And, and so I, um, I, I do believe that gold has a role to play. I think, uh, you know, the, there's almost a philosophical angle here with respect to 
what's the right model and, and the debate between, you know, fiat and, and money that is anchored to physical assets. And, and none of the systems is, is perfect. Uh, but the systems are built on, on, on some pros and cons and some premises. And as we discussed earlier, I think it's clear that the system based on monetary and fiat being some sort of act of faith um, stems from the fact of central bank independence. You know, the minute uh, th these things don't exist and we know that the, the, the system is, is built in a way that it, it, it will fail because faced with war or with a pandemic, of course, the central bank, the government will, mm -hmm. will want to to tap and, and, and no better way to do it than, than, than printing. So in some ways, I, I do think gold um, has this very long-term strategic role to play. Uh, I happen to love it. Uh, you know, anybody who's got gold in, in, in their hands, uh, whether it's a coin or something, it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's truly unique. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated. Uh, it happened to be my, my first job as a gold trader in, in JP Morgan in the, in the middle late 90s. But uh, as I say, it's not, it's not just gold. There are many things that... Uh, can, can play in some way this, this anti-bubble role of, of fiat. But, uh, but I think the fiat, uh, every single broth, monetary broth, is, is, uh, uh, is, is set for failure. Um, I, I, a lot of people might be thinking uh, about crypto and, mm -hmm. and whether that's, you know, the new gold and whatever. Um, I, rightly or wrongly, have been very skeptical um, for, for a number of reasons, uh, and, and don't take me wrong, I'm an engineer, I'm the biggest uh, fan and believer in the power of technology and the transformational power of, of technology. My entire energy book was about mm -hmm. the transformational powerful, uh, power of, of technology, and, and I do believe in, in, in the transformational power of, of blockchain and many things. But uh, that doesn't mean that uh, you know uh, crypto is worth infinity or all of them are going to make instant billionaires. I think there's so many considerations, and, and I think uh, ultimately, you know, uh, there's only 21 million Bitcoin, but you can create 21 million different cryptos out of thin air. And and people would argue to that that you know this is like comparing gold and silver and and whatever they're like different needs. And I would disagree with that. I think I had this debate with my good friend Daniel Lacalle, and, and, and one of the arguments we used in the energy book when we basically said the last barrel of oil will not be worth millions; it will be worth zero. And mm -hmm. trust me, it was incredibly conventional. I mean, uh, contrary at the time people were looking at <laughs> right. us, I these guys from from Mars. The point we made is nobody needs oil. Nobody needs oil right. per se. Right. We need to, to transport you know, from point A to B in the cheapest, cleanest, most reliable, uh, you know, efficient way, right? And, and that's why sometimes people get lost and they're like, we need oil. No, we don't need oil per se. If you have a, a cheaper, cleaner, reliable, abundant alternative, oil will, will disappear. And, and, and so I can see how crypto emerges as this kind of solution. I think my, my frustration comes with the fundamentalist you know, mm -hmm. movements, uh, almost sectarian. But, but I understand them because the, the minute you open up to you know, uh, accepting that 
there's more than one solution, then the entire um, argument of scarcity falls apart. So mm -hmm. of course the 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 Bitcoin fundamentalists will will want to think that the Bitcoin is the only thing in town and everything else is crap because if they accept the other stuff is is viable and the, the technologies work and they solve the problem, then uh, then everything converges to zero. So. Uh, so I think it's a fascinating world. Uh, I, I, um, I can see a lot of the merits. I, can, there's, I pointed out in a, in a piece called you know, Bitcoin Bubble, Anti-Bubble, which I think we discussed that in the last uh, podcast. Uh, many of the things have been playing out, letter by yeah. letter. And, uh, and we'll see how it ends. But uh, I, I find, going back to gold, encouraging from a gold perspective that correlations have been negative. Uh, I think the high correlation between equities and, and crypto is concerning because it looks slightly more of a striker uh, that could fall into the risk of false diversification, even if he has merits that could put him as, as defender and a lot of optionality. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think gold uh, in, in the right size should be part of people's portfolios. It has a role to play. But once again, I don't believe in a in a goalkeeper that does everything for everyone uh, every mm -hmm. time. So right. when you build your defenders and goalkeepers, you should have a team. Mm -hmm. And and this is the advantage we have in, in soccer. You can only have one, and he can only go left or right. Here you could have <laughs> many Multiple. more covering the entire yeah. the entire goal. Yeah. And and hopefully some of those will play out. And also we need to be mindful of what I call the domino effect, which is crisis. Not everything happens at the same time. You know, the stereotypical crisis would be emerging markets go down, commodities, emerging markets, then developed markets, then that leads uh, yields lower and treasuries and fixed income higher and money printing and then eventually gold happens. So mm -hmm. the gold hedge is not something that will be seen in, in, in the first leg of the moves, mm -hmm. but it's something that has a delayed effect. So yeah. thinking about how to position yourself with hedges across time horizons, underlines, payoffs, taking advantage of volatility, skew, term structures, correlation. That's that's what we do. We have a lot of fun, uh, you know, creating a, a team of goalkeepers that will will do very extreme uh, asymmetric returns when when things go very very wrong. But we're not the only one. There's lots of great yeah. goalkeepers out there, yeah. and uh, it, it's fun. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I would just. Propose that you've given us a list of um, the shifts in investor mindset, um, you know, precipitated by inflation, you know, from financial assets to real assets, from you know, fixed income to equities. And uh, my friend Peter Atwater has said, you know, kind of a, a larger uh, version of this is a preference for the tangible and uh, less for the intangible. So that might be, you know, another argument for away from you know, structured financial products and things that are hard to wrap your head around to things that you can, you know, touch and feel and hold in your hand is, you know, kind of part of that larger trend too. So there's a, um, there's a saying that says reality beats fiction mm -hmm. and it's often used, you know, you, you do this incredible movie of this terrible uh, serial killer that does these things that are incredible to believe. And then turns out that, there's some nutter in Germany that kept uh, someone in a 
in a basement uh, for 20 years and you, you actually see these things and they're really hard to believe maybe, mm -hmm. you know what, what reality can can bring so uh, terrible things in, bo in both ways reality beats fiction I do think it applies to real assets versus mm -hmm. fictional assets right. <laughs> uh, so your, your, your point on tangibility it's, it's important I think if, if we bring it up to level three mm -hmm. then uh, we're going to see also Uh, the tangibility of things that are uh, uh, not able to move around, mm. such as, you know, why, why in the UK you have a wealth a mansion and taxes and things like that. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, in level two, real assets are awesome and, and we want them. Mm -hmm. But uh, but yeah, the, you know, uh, level three also factors in things that are can be easily taxed um, or expropriated or nationalized, and and that. That's fascinating. It's it's yet another complication to the investment game, and it brings you into all sorts of things. You know, gold versus gold equities. I mean, they're they're both great. They can play different roles, uh, but you know, at the end of the day, they're different things. Yeah. Uh, you know, oil versus oil equities. Yeah. Everybody understands that. And 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 taxation, expropriation, nationalization are some part of that. So. Uh, Yeah, I think the 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 phase where we're now is the some frogs have realized what's happening and and the, the risk might be skewed and, and and they're jumping already. Some others uh, are realizing it, but they cannot jump because they're they're uh, handcuffed. Some others are still not thinking in in real terms or might think that uh, they buy in the narrative. Either way, it's going to be a volatile uh, time. You know, jumps. Yeah. Maybe jumping out and some back in, and, and from frying pans to boiling stuff to <laughs> things that all over the place. A few, a few frogs smashed on the floor, and yeah. people hunting them. <laughs> anyway, it's it's a it's a very uncertain outlook. Uh, we have a, a number of things that could be relatively binary, like uh, you know, like the war finishing abruptly, mm -hmm. or finding some good solutions to things that would be great. But the, the theta of the system is 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 negative. Uh, every day that goes by with this sort of high commodity prices, these bottlenecks, this fragility, these things is is bad news. And so I, I'd like to be as optimistic as possible and hope for for the better. But I think it's it's mm -hmm. a, it's a tricky time. And, and being in Europe, I have to say that this energy divergence is. Is, is hurting us. And mm -hmm. We didn't talk much about energy, and we're probably over time already. But, <laughs> but I think there there is a, an angle where, um, you know, it's, it's not so much about crude oil. Crude oil, to a certain extent, is a problem that we're all experiencing, subject to taxes as well. Mm -hmm. But, but uh, on a global scale, it's a global problem. We're all suffering from higher gasoline or diesel prices. But the big thing on the energy markets is the divergence across the power and natural gas and, and others and natural mm -hmm. gas uh, you know it's it's it was a regional commodity globalized it's, it's back to regional um, because of bottlenecks and, and certain things and and that regionality means that Europe is paying roughly 10 times more expensive than than, than the US and and this is something that I think Europe is is going to struggle with and if this Continues or gets worse because of our reliance in in uh, 
on Russian gas. I think it's it's going to take a big toll in in the European industry, and and it's bad news globally overall. And 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 that's probably the biggest weapon that Putin has. It's not nuclear. I, I don't think he's unpredictable and a very dangerous guy, but I don't think he'll go that way unless he's extraordinarily desperate. But I think the energy weapon is, is, is powerful. I think even in the current form, with gas still flowing, it's still a major uh, issue. It's strangling uh, Europe. And, and yeah, I think there are large implications. I mean, uh, talking of narratives, nuclear is going to be very green again and mm-hmm. very awesome. Mm-hmm. And so lots of big transformational changes, lots of opportunity, lots of risk. And, and I think we are in a, in a fascinating time in our, in, in, for, for macro with, uh, with these transformations that open huge opportunities and, and huge risks for those yeah. who are... Uh, well, who it kind of brings it back to the beginning of our discussion where I think one of the misconceptions behind the idea of low, persistently low inflation was the idea that we'd have consistent uh, and easy access to low-priced commodities. And that's really coming under question now. But you're right. We, I've taken up a ton of your time. I, I, I just, I know we've, we've used a ton of metaphors today and at risk of mixing even more metaphors. <laughs> um, you, you, you view, one of the reasons I love to talk to you is you view markets in a truly unique way. And I know you mentioned before we started recording that you're a tennis player. You use these yeah. the football metaphor, soccer in my country. Probably should be called football everywhere. But um, <laughs> as a tennis player, is there a particular player that you admire that you think you know maybe is representative of you as an investor or what you try to accomplish? What an awesome question. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. Uh, no, actually, I'm doing a lot of work on this. Um, it's it's kind of a life. Uh, a life project uh, where I'm, I'm, I'm realizing the power of analogies and, and I think it's, uh, it's my next book actually, I'm working on it already. And the, the frog in the boiling water or the football team analogy or uh, many other things help people understand because uh, we're bringing complex issues uh, into a world of of competence. So uh, my mom is an amazing cook and my grandfather was a chef. And so if I need to explain something to my mom, I do it in, uh, in cooking terms. Um, and and you, need, you need the ability to speak both, both languages, mm-hmm. to translate the problem. But the most fascinating thing that happens is how my mom will ask the right question in cooking that if I translate it, you know, so we could talk about the soccer analogy, the football team. You could go all all day and say, so who's the referee? And you know, for example, Cash with a friend of mine said, yeah, of course, Cash is a striker in the bench. It's like, <laughs> of course it is. Yeah. So people actually put money on the bench for a while, right? And waiting to put him back on the team as a striker, right? right? And and I and I was like, this is so true because what happens to the striker in the bench if you leave him there for three years? Yeah. Atrophy, right? He yeah. loses value. He, he can score goals. He's losing form. So it makes sense. So back to the tennis. Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I, I used to, to play, uh, you know, amateur level, but uh, competitive. And I love the game. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the game. And so I 
love and admire everybody, but yeah. uh, Rafa is probably my okay. my wife would say is my fourth son. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I really love him, but I, I have the greatest uh, respect for and, and admiration and love for for Federer, for Djokovic, for for Mari, for all these guys. Uh, and uh, I think the question you ask me is is very interesting, uh, and I, and we could extrapolate to pretty much every investor in right. some way. But I think Rafa has a particularly good way uh, of of looking of, uh, at the game, and and Rafa is the common denominator between all these guys that they're incredible defenders. Even yeah. even Federer, if people don't realize how good of a defender he is. Yeah. Uh, the the serve, which is where you take the the initiative, I and mean, right. nobody's throwing you the ball. You are the yeah. one who throws the balls and stuff. Uh, it's it's very important it's how you start the trades maybe, but once they're in game or how you defend yourself and how difficult it is to, to you need to beat Rafa three times before you win a point. Mm-hmm. But then the way when they're up, how they attack, mm-hmm. it's just brutal. So mm-hmm. at amateur level, we play a little bit more to to the other guy's mistakes sometimes. Mm-hmm. At, at, at this level, you go for winners. Yeah. And it's fascinating. So I, I, I wish I could resemble uh, you know, <laughs> Rafa in the sense that we are, you can defend aggressively, but once you're up, you go for it. And it's yeah. that asymmetry of the game, of of how you know hard is, you know, Rafa protects the score and the capital in a big way. And I don't think it's a surprise that Rafa is actually a very good golfer, yeah. and and even a very good poker player. Right. Because uh, these are games where you know I think his mindset uh, and, and plays out that way. You, you when you're you know when to go for it, and, and the asymmetry of the game is fascinating because when when you push this in, and we'll talk about this in the book and maybe another another time. But in golf, for example, the asymmetry works the other way around, right? Mm-hmm. In golf, you, you cannot do a hole in minus five. <laughs> <laughs> You can do plus 20, right? Right. So right. golfers are naturally incredible risk managers. And yeah. They're incredibly good at... Well, at you that. can't win the tournament on day one, but you can lose the tournament on day of one. Course, right? Of course, <laughs> yeah. of course. And, you can, and, and so if you think about the granularity of the game and what it takes, you know, if you want to be a really good... Uh, and this is something I've done. I mean, I, we, we talk about the, the poker book and one of our first... Uh, the Poker Mindset. I think yeah. It's one of the best books I've read on, on, on the mindset of the game. It's It's... Applied to poker, but you can go line by line and use it for for markets, and and so I think there's a lot of uh, reflexivity in, in between sports and lessons to be learned, and uh, and that's something I'm working on, and, and mm-hmm. it's a lot of fun. But I think tennis has many many things that uh, that that relate to the game, uh, but every every game, you know, I'm a big chess player, I, you know. So there are great things about chess that you mm-hmm. can apply, but but it's a game of perfect information. Uh, so it's not yeah. uh, poker is closer. So it's, it's, it's a fascinating uh, Frankenstein you could create from analogies. And <laughs> right. things. So that's what I'm working on. It's kind of doing doing a little bit of it's just for fun. And well, I think it's fascinating. It's very helpful in in uh, explaining a lot of what's going on because so much of what's going on in the markets is so esoteric and hard to understand for people that when you do 
explain it via metaphor. It's helpful. You know, I, I'm a huge tennis fan. I, I, at Indian Wells, I was glued to the screen watching oh. Rafa versus Alcaraz and With the, the future. Yeah. Oh, oh my, my gosh. Yeah. The, the future Even of on TV, you could see it. <laughs> yeah, wow. it was brutal, but, and they were both, you know, just battling. They never give up. And it's just, uh, yeah, it's fascinating to watch them uh, play defense first. And it's, it's, it reminds me of, you know, every great investor you, you, you talk to they, rule number one, don't lose money. Rule number two, never forget exactly. rule number one. And then that you see them play that on the court. So it's, that's fascinating. Diego, thank you so much for, for taking your time to do this today. Um, is there a place where people can go to learn more about you and, and what you do? Well, look, uh, first of all, you're very kind. It's, it's always a lot of fun. And I, I, I took some notes, uh, you know, things I, I enjoy about these chats is that they, it's, it's like sparring in boxing, you know, you, you, you're getting, you get better. Uh, and, and so thank you for, for coming all the way and, and taking the time. And I invite everyone to come to, to Madrid and, and enjoy this, this lovely city and country. Um, I, uh, I, I'm not as active on the, on the social media, but I, I do have accounts with Twitter, Parrilla underscore Diego and, and, and LinkedIn. Uh, I now have a newsletter. Uh, people can subscribe for free called the Anti-Bubble Report as part of the... Uh, it's easy to access via, via Twitter. And uh, in general, uh, we do this all just you know, for the sake of, of spreading and, and mm-hmm. learning. And, and I find the process of, of writing uh, very educational. I think people, Cicero said, if you want to uh, learn, teach... And, and I think if, 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 you, if you want to learn, I would say you write. So I, I do these things, but they, they provoke me, they, they, you know, and, and I, I hope people will find the newsletter helpful. Ultimately, uh, a number of people have also invested along with, with our strategies, which is, you know, the main thing we do, but they're, they're very closely related, you know, mm-hmm. having the, the, the big picture correct, the implementation, and, and, um, and so, yeah, people could, could subscribe to, to the newsletter and um, I look forward to, to feedback and, and, and again, these, these conversations are super enjoyable and, and always, I always learn something and, uh, you know, you might see the level zero appear with uh, the relative game <laughs> yeah. in future conversations, but, uh, but yeah, I hope uh, people find this, this hopeful and be happy to, to, to engage with the, through the media and, and, and the newsletter and I look forward to any feedback. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it's a wonderful thing that you've put out the new newsletter. I think it's, it's must read for me. Every time it comes out, I'll put a link to how to subscribe to that also at thefelderreport.com. Um, and I also have to highly recommend, uh, Madrid. I've had a wonderful time since I've been here. It's taken me, I, it's been, uh, it took me way too long to, to come visit and, and, uh, it's been, been wonderful. But thank you, Diego. We'll have to do this again, hopefully, uh, in, in uh, maybe another year. <laughs> so it's lovely to check in with you. Thank you so much. It's been my, my pleasure. Thank you. And that does it for another episode of Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. As always, you can find notes and links related to this episode at thefelderreport.com. Thank you for listening, and until next time, buy low, sell high. Man looks in the abyss. 
There's nothing staring back at him. At that moment, a man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss.